Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us as we go on investigating Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I want to begin today by quoting a standard commentary by a leading New Testament scholar on the issue of the Kingdom of God. He's commenting here on the famous verses in Mark chapter 1, which provide us with an encapsulation, an abbreviated and yet comprehensive statement of the whole mission and purpose of Jesus. It has to do with the kingdom of God, where Jesus says, Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. This scholar says the following about the kingdom of God. When Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near, he was adopting a concept which was coined in the Old Testament end of the beginning of our quotation. Now, nothing could be more important than to grasp the fact that Jesus did not introduce a brand new concept when he announced the kingdom of God. He gave no explanation at this stage of what he meant by the kingdom. He assumed, as he made his public announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand, that his audience knew what he was talking about. The only way, then, that we can make any sense of this is to realize that the kingdom of God was already existing as a well-established concept in the mind of both Jesus and his potential converts. The Old Testament had indeed coined the phrase, or at least the idea, if not the phrase, the idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, according to the Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament, was the time coming when God would intervene to establish finally and decisively a real theocratic empire on the earth with Jerusalem as the world headquarters of the messianic kingdom with the Messiah ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem on this planet. Now that kingdom of God to be established by a divine and cataclysmic intervention from God himself would come at the end of a period of fierce tribulation and trouble for Israel and indeed for the world in general. The time preceding the coming of the kingdom of God was known by the rabbis as the birth pangs of Messiah, and Jesus used that very phrase in the 24th chapter of Matthew. And so Jesus adopts an idea about the kingdom of God which is standard in the Judaism of his time because it was based on the common heritage of Jesus and his audience, namely the Old Testament scriptures, and the predictions of God's inspired prophets. Now, the kingdom of God, this uh, New Testament scholar goes on to say, is primarily God's unchallenged sovereignty in the end time. And our scholar there refers to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where we find the expression, the Lord reigns, or rather the Lord has begun to reign. And we know from the Jewish paraphrase of that particular verse, that they understood that to mean the kingdom of God will be revealed. Now, it is quite characteristic of the New Testament to introduce a noun where the corresponding passages in the Old Testament had a verb. I hardly need to remind you of the fact that in the beginning of Genesis we read that God said. In the New Testament we read about the word of God. The verb God said has become the noun word in the New Testament. And so the idea of the reign of God, the verb God reigning in Isaiah 52 verse 7, appears in our New Testament 
as the kingdom of God. So this scholar then points out correctly that the kingdom, in the thinking of Jesus as he inaugurated his ministry in Palestine, was to be the kingdom which God would establish after annihilating every one of his foes and after the end of all suffering. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God, says this scholar, is conceived first of all as something in the future. And he refers, uh, by way of proof, to many texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then primarily in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, where we read that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Obviously there, then, the kingdom of God is the great fact of the future. The kingdom of God, this author goes on to say, is something that men can only wait for. And there he refers to Mark, chapter 15, verse 43, where we read that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Christian disciple, was still waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God, and that was after the ministry of Jesus on earth was complete. Now, had Joseph of Arimathea missed the boat? Had he missed seeing that the kingdom of God had already arrived? Well, obviously not. Joseph was rightly waiting for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God was in the future. Hence, Jesus had told the disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. The author goes on to point out that Matthew 6.33 tells us that Jesus urged us to seek first the kingdom of God, to receive the message of the kingdom in Mark 10, verse 15. And then the kingdom of God was something which was to be a gift to the faithful. Fear not, little flock, Jesus said, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And also then that the disciples, according to Paul, are to inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Galatians 5, verse 21, and James 2 and verse 5 are all prominent kingdom statements which involve a kingdom in the future as the prize of faithful discipleship now. The kingdom of God, this author finally says, is not something that man can possibly create on his own. It's not just an amelioration of present world political systems. It's not something that we can work for and produce without God's intervention. In fact, it was the very temptation of the devil to Jesus, which involved the idea that the kingdom of God could somehow be established this side of the second coming. Satan, you know, offered Jesus the kingdom on his terms, on the devil's terms, and Jesus refused that and decided to have the kingdom only on God's terms. So in order to be clear about the meaning of the word kingdom of God, we must establish the fact that the normal and regular meaning of Jesus' famous phrase, the kingdom of God, is the kingdom which will be established at the second coming. It's the kingdom of the future for which at the most simple level we pray, Thy kingdom come. It's the kingdom in which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will appear when they're resurrected. You remember that Jesus said in Matthew 8 verse 11, When you see, in the future that is, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. You remember that in Luke 21, verse 31, Jesus said that when we witness the cataclysmic events preceding the end of this age, it is when we see these beginning to happen, in Luke 21, verse 31, then we're to know that the kingdom of God is about to come. Many commentators point out correctly that the preaching of the kingdom of God, 
revival obviously refers to the kingdom of God which will begin with the second coming. This is clear from some of the most basic statements in the teaching of Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, for example, we find that Joseph of Arimathea was still waiting for the kingdom of God, and yet Jesus' ministry was over. In Acts 1 we find that the kingdom of God is to come at a time unknown in the future, according to Jesus in Acts 1 and verse 7. You will remember that in Acts 1 verse 5, Jesus had said that the Spirit was going to come in power to the church in a few days' time. And yet the kingdom of God was to come at a time in the distant future, a time of restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And that's repeated, of course, that fact is repeated and underlined in Acts 3 verse 21, where we read a beautiful statement about God's program, God's timetable. Heaven is to retain the Messiah, Peter said in Acts 3 verse 21, until the time comes for the restoration of all things, as the prophets of old spoke. And that restoration is clearly linked with the text in Acts 1.6 where the disciples ask, Is this the time now for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the restoration of the kingdom. That's the restoration of all things. Acts 1.6 carefully compared with Acts 3 verse 21. H.J. Cadbury in his article Acts and Eschatology says, Nothing obviously distinguishes the term kingdom of God in the book of Acts from such apocalyptic use that it has in the Gospels. In other words, in the Gospels, the kingdom of God means the great decisive intervening event of the future to happen at the second coming. And that's exactly the same meaning that the word kingdom of God carries in the book of Acts also. Kevin Giles, in the Reformed Theological Review of September to December 1981, remarks that Luke's understanding of the kingdom of God is that it is still in the future and it will mean the restoration of Israel. And he quotes then another colleague theologian, J. Jervil, who points out that Luke's theology anticipated a restored Israel. Does your theology anticipate a restoration of the kingdom to Israel? If so, then you can be happy to be in agreement with Luke and, of course, with Jesus, whom Luke correctly reported. There's such overwhelming evidence that the term kingdom of God has to do with the theocratic empire of the future expected by the prophets of the Old Testament. Sometimes people will react with uh, this comment. What good is the future kingdom and the knowledge of the coming kingdom to me today? I need something to sustain me in the present. Don't talk to me about the future. I'd like to answer that point with a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spoke of faith in the coming kingdom and the Christian function as the future rulers of the world, as the great driving and motivating force of New Testament Christians. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on the book of Romans. We Christians are going to dwell in glorified bodies on the glorified earth. This is one of the great Christian doctrines that has been almost entirely forgotten and ignored. Unfortunately, the Christian church, and I speak generally, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Christian church does not believe this and therefore does not teach it. It has lost its hope and this explains why the Christian church spends much or most of its time in trying to improve life in this world 
in preaching politics. But something remarkable is going to be true of us, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Paul there says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law in front of the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints are going to rule the world? And then Martin Lloyd-Jones comments as follows, This is Christianity, he says. This is the truth by which the New Testament church lived. It was because of this that they were not afraid of their persecutors. This was the secret of their endurance, their patience, and their triumphing over everything that was set against them. End of quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the book of Romans. But notice that he says that the essence of the New Testament Christian faith is the driving hope that the church is going to rule the world with Christ following the arrival of the Messiah at his second coming. Another quotation along the same lines comes from a professor of theology who speaks of the common thread that runs through the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. He says that the prospect, and I'm quoting now, the prospect of reigning with Christ in his millennial kingdom is set before all the churches as the great inducement to right conduct. Can we wonder, he says, at the low spiritual state of the churches of our age when this great fact has been ignored and the book of Revelation neglected and misunderstood? We say a hearty amen to that statement and invite you to join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' most famous topic, his gospel about the kingdom of God.